Greetings, folks, and welcome to An Eclectic Humanist. Today, I'd like to wrap up the little two-part series on early modern feminism by skipping across the entire Eurasian landmass from England, where we left off last time, to China, and discussing a piece of writing by one of the more controversial thinkers and writers of the Ming Dynasty, Li Ji. Now, to set the scene, I'd like to paint a picture for you. The date is May 6th, 1602. An old man sits in a Chinese jail cell. He has the robes and shaved head of a Buddhist monk and the long trailing beard of a Confucian scholar. He has been arrested for reasons that we'll discuss shortly and is about to face his interrogators. In preparation for the encounter, he asks his jailers for a razor and a basin of water so that he can make himself presentable. The items are provided for him as requested and... Before anyone can stop him, he slits his own throat. This, as I said, is Li Ji, poet, literary critic, and political commentator. His dates are 1527 to 1602, and he lived during the Ming Dynasty, a particularly conservative period in Chinese cultural history. He had studied quite deeply all three of the major schools of thought in Chinese culture, typically called the three schools, namely Confucianism, Taoism, and Buddhism, and had at one time or another identified with various of these schools. Later in life, he also seems to have come into contact with at least some of the thought of both the Muslim and Christian world. So he was a genuinely cosmopolitan intellect. And as genuinely cosmopolitan intellects tend to do in conservative environments, he often ran afoul of people in authority over him. Because not only was he cosmopolitan and intellectually adventurous, he was also outspoken and suffered neither fools nor dogma gladly. In terms of how he conducted himself, he adopted a mode of dress that managed to outrage a lot of people. That is, he took the robes of a Buddhist monk and shaved his head, but at the same time, wore a long beard indicating that he was Confucian. He blended ideas without worrying about whether they belonged to one or another school as long as there was a valid intellectual reason for him doing so. And at a time when gender roles were particularly confining for Chinese women, Li Ji took on a woman as a student. The woman's name was Mei Dan Ran, she was the daughter of a prominent statesman in the Ming Dynasty, particularly outraging Confucians, as Mahayana Buddhism, the school of Buddhism that proliferates in China, is not as restrictive where women are concerned, nor is Taoism. When word of their teacher-student relationship got out, a writ was issued for Li's arrest. The writ contains accusations of sexual misconduct for which there's no evidence and generally serves as an attack upon his moral character. Here's an excerpt. Particularly reprehensible is that when Li was lodging in Ma Cheng, he gave free rein to his impulses and, together with his unsavory companions, frequented nunneries, fondled courtesans, and bathed with them in broad daylight. Moreover, he enticed the wives and daughters of literati into the nunneries to discuss the Dharma. They even went so far as to bring their quilts and pillows and spend the night there. The situation was out of control. 
What's more, he wrote a book called Questioning Guan Yin, but by Guan Yin, he meant the wives and daughters of the literati. Young men took delight in his unrestrained wildness and goaded one another on to follow suit. They knew no shame and behaved like beasts, openly stealing money and violating other people's wives and daughters. So this is pretty juicy stuff. He's basically being accused of sexual misconduct and that perennial philosophical favorite, corrupting the youth. And that he did have close relationships with a number of students is not surprising. It is, of course, with the young that anyone seeking to institute or provoke social change has to concern themselves, isn't it? With people, that is, who are, well, perhaps coming from a position of privilege, as most students in most societies do, are not yet fully vested in the system, and who don't completely identify with the status quo. And many of his writings indicate a genuine impatience with the intellectual and moral pretensions that perpetuated the segregation of society into strict gender and class hierarchies. And this isn't just a matter of gender and class either. He's also known to have sympathized openly in his writings with the plights of indigenous peoples within the Chinese empire. Where his approach to Confucianism is concerned, he was a Neo-Confucian, Neo-Confucianism being the dominant school of thought in Confucianism from about the 11th to the early 20th centuries. This particular school of thought consists of a fusion or a synthesis of both Taoist and particularly Buddhist thinking under an overall Confucian umbrella, very similar in its genesis and in its subsequent importance to the medieval synthesis between Christian and Aristotelian thinking that formed much of the thought of Europe in the late middle and early modern period. That is the merger of multiple schools into something qualitatively different and really in many ways, if not more flexible, at least more robust than what had come before. That is, in a rough analogy, what Aquinas did for Christian philosophy the early thinkers in the Neo-Confucian school, particularly a guy by the name of Zhu Xi, did for Confucian philosophy. But even Neo-Confucianism was not a unified body of thought. There were a couple of different dueling schools within the overall Neo-Confucian umbrella. There was the orthodoxy, following the thought generally of Zhu Xi, whom I just mentioned, which took a very conservative notion to the role of women in society, or the roles of women in society and in the family, and tended to place an emphasis on book learning, deliberate study, as the ideal course of intellectual development. Opposed to this school was the school to which Li Ji belonged, called the Taizhou School, or the School of Pure Knowing, which argued that knowledge and moral cultivation are universal and universally accessible, regardless of social, gender, economic background, etc. And it was as an adherent of this particular school of thought that Li Ji was very outspoken against the dominant and much more conservative notions of the official Neo-Confucianism of his time. Much of his criticism of the underestimation of the capacities of women is addressed at institutional structures that don't allow women to develop their natural capacities to the same degree that men are allowed to develop theirs. 
like Jane Anger in this sense, Lee is very modern in his outlook, basing his arguments on observable capacities rather than inherited wisdom or inherited presuppositions. Since then, and quite frankly in his own lifetime, his work became wildly popular, particularly among fellow contrarians, fellow critics of the status quo. And while for a long time he was rejected by the mainstream intelligentsia, both his philosophical and his literary essays did actually exert an influence, a progressive influence, on Chinese culture into the 20th century. Lee, in his own time, and this shows up in his letters, suspected for a long time that he would die in custody, that he would be ultimately arrested for the views he was publicizing, whether for the views directly or on trumped-up charges, as it turned out. And the titles he gave his books reflected quite clearly the reception that he knew they would get by the conservative culture of his time. The one from which the text we'll be looking at in a moment is taken is titled A Book to Burn. These are books that many people bought, but didn't keep in public view. In any case, his ending is a tragic ending to what I see as a life well lived, but an ending that is also infused with dignity. When he had said everything that he had to say or was able to say, and while he was in custody and about to probably undergo torture, he took his ending into his own hand, rather than leaving it to the authority of power structures he did not respect. There is something in Lee's suicide, I think, that reminds me of the suicide of the great Roman statesman Cato, who chose to end his own life rather than submit to the authority of a tyrant. That is, it was not an act of cowardice. It was an act of defiance. For now, though, what I think I'd like to do is just read the letter published in 1588 in which Lee lays out his argument for the equality of women and men. It's short, only a few pages long, and this way, when I start talking about it afterwards, you can have the whole thing metaphorically present in front of your mind, and you'll know that I'm not misrepresenting anything. Just by way of introduction, what Lee does is he begins by conceding ground, or at least appearing to concede ground, on the assertion that women are inferior to men, and then basically stands that position on its head by taking a closer look at its presuppositions and the institutional realities underlying it. This is a fairly common approach that he takes to other questions as well. And I think it's worth noting that, as I said, this was published in 1588, just the year before Jane Anger published her own pamphlet. And in both cases, the text that we have is a response replying to previous comments disparaging women that are really quite in line with the conventional conservative wisdom of their respective societies. I really do love the common ground between these two writers working at the same time with similar ideas at completely opposite ends of the Eurasian landmass. So here's Lee's letter explaining why he thinks women and men are equal. Yesterday, I had the opportunity to hear your esteemed teaching, wherein you proclaimed that women, being short-sighted, are incapable of understanding the Tao. The Tao is the way. Indeed, this is so. Indeed, this is so. Women never cross the threshold of their reserved domain, while men wander freely throughout the world's four quarters. That there exists vision that is short-sighted and vision that is far-sighted is self-evident. 
But what is called short-sightedness comes about when one has not seen anything beyond the inner chambers. In contrast, the far-sighted deeply investigate vast and open planes of light. The short-sighted perceive only what happens within a hundred-year span, what will happen in the lifespan of their children and grandchildren, or what affects their own bodies. The far-sighted see beyond their own physical bodies, transcend the superficial appearances of life and death, and reach into a realm that is immeasurable, incomparably large, larger than can be measured by numbers such as a hundred, a thousand, a million, a billion, or a kalpa. A kalpa is basically an eon in Hindu and Buddhist thought. The short-sighted hear only chatter in the streets, the viewpoints of those in the alleys, and the talk of children in the marketplace. The far-sighted are able to hold great men in deep awe. They dare not disrespect the words of the sages, and moreover, they are unmoved by the dislikes and prejudices that come from the mouths of commoners. Commoners here is a translation of a term meaning petty men in Confucianism. That is, people concerned only with self-interest. I humbly propose that those who desire to discourse on short-sightedness and far-sightedness should do as I have done. One must not stop at the observation that women's vision is short-sighted. To say that male and female people exist is acceptable. But to say that male and female vision exist, how can this be acceptable? To say that short-sightedness and far-sightedness exist is acceptable. But to say that a man's vision is entirely far-sighted and a woman's vision is wholly short-sighted, once again, how can that be acceptable? Suppose there exists a person with a woman's body and a man's vision. Suppose she delights in hearing upright discourse and knows that uncultivated speech is not worth listening to. She delights in learning about the transcendent and understands that the ephemeral world is not worth becoming attached to. If men of today were to meet such a woman, I fear that they would all feel shame and remorse, sweat profusely, and be unable to utter a single syllable. It may have been in hopes of encountering such a person that the sage Confucius wandered the world, desiring to meet her just once but unable to find her. And for such a person to be dismissed as a short-sighted creature, isn't this unjust? However, why should such a person care about our treating her justly or unjustly? I suppose the disinterested observer would find the question ridiculous. From our present perspective, we can observe the following. Yi Jiang, a woman, Quote, filled in the ranks, end quote, alongside King Wu's nine ministers. Nothing hindered her, counting as one of the, quote, ten able ministers, end quote, alongside Zhou, Xiao, and Tai Zhang. This is from Analects, Book 8, Chapter 20. King Wen's mother, a sagely woman, rectified the customs of the southern regions. Nothing prevented her from being praised along with Song Yisheng and Tai Dian as one of the four friends who helped King Wu in his difficulties. These limited mundane actions responded to the needs of the time. The concern of Kings Wu and Wen was no more than to establish one era of peace, and yet they dared not link short-sightedness with women and far-sightedness with men. Those who study the transcendent Tao and desire to be like Shakyamuni and Confucius, Shakyamuni is the Buddha, People who, having heard the Tao in the morning, could die contentedly in the evening, have even less reason to draw this distinction. If a small-minded man in the street were to hear about women of their kind, he would scold them violently for having dared to peek out of their inner chambers, and in the name of favoring the purity of women, consider King Wen's mother and Yi Jiang to be criminals. Isn't this unjust in the extreme? Rather, gentlemen who credit themselves with far-sightedness 
should neither behave in such a way as to incite the ridicule of their betters, nor strive to gain the approval or affection of small-minded men in the marketplace. If one desires to be admired by small-minded men of the marketplace, then one is just another small-minded creature. Is this farsightedness or is this short-sightedness? One needs to decide for oneself. I say that a farsighted woman who can rectify human relations and serve as a propitious example of excellence is the sort of person who is born only once in several hundred years and comes as a result of accumulated virtue. There once was a woman named Shui Dao, who came from the city of Chang'an. Yuan Zhen heard about her and requested a posting to Sichuan so that he could meet her. Before Yuan Zhen's departure, Tao wrote a poem in praise of four friends to reciprocate his good intentions. Yuan Zhen acknowledged her as his superior by far. Yuan Zhen was an outstanding poet in his day. Was it easy for him to acknowledge anyone as his superior? Ah, a literary talent such as Tao's can attract the admiration of people a thousand miles away. What if there were a woman wandering through this world with an understanding achieved by studying the Buddha's teaching? If one were to meet a woman who transcended this material world, could anyone possibly refuse to admire her greatly? But there has never been such a thing, you say. Have you not heard the story of Layman Pang? Layman Pang came from the city of Hanyang in the Chu region. He and his wife, Mother Pang, and their daughter, Ling Zhao, revered the Chan master Ma Tzu and made him their teacher. Chan is the Chinese word for Zen. They sought to transcend the material world, and one day they escaped the cycle of rebirth. By putting aside the things of the world, they gave inspiration for all humanity. I hope, sir, that this man's story can stand as an example of what it is to be a far-sighted person. If you tell me I must wait to discuss this issue with the likes of a small-minded person from the marketplace, then I am at a loss for words. So, okay, how do we want to handle this? There's obviously a lot more than we can comfortably talk about in a single episode, so I think I'd like to focus on three elements in particular. The institutional critique with which he begins, some discussion of his treatment of the historical canon, particularly the Confucian historical canon, and finally, I'd like to wrap up with the rather obscure discussion of Layman Pang. Let's start with the institutional critique. As I mentioned when we were getting started, Lee begins by seeming to concede the ground that women are less broad-minded or more short-sighted than men, that they have a less expansive vision. And yet, he immediately stands that on its head. And he does so in a way that reminds me very much of Mary Wollstonecraft's critique of patriarchal social structures in The Vindication of the Rights of Women some 200 years later. He mentions, for example, that while men have the roaming of the world and the doing of public business in which to cultivate their characters and broaden their vision, women, and particularly this is true of noble women, are largely confined to the household. He refers to the inner chambers, so not even the entire household. His argument here being basically that if women are not given the opportunity to expand their vision, of course their vision will not be equal to that of men. But this is no fault of women. It is a fault of the institutions that keep them confined. He therefore argues against the general tendency, and this is true both in his society and in many others, of treating the narrower scope of the women's discourse that he has encountered 
as if that were attributable to a limitation in women's capacities, and argues instead, as I mentioned, that those limitations are actually enforced by the culture of the time and have nothing to do with the actual innate capacities of women in relation to men or men in relation to women. That is, Lee is adopting the position of the school of pure knowing, which I mentioned in the introduction, and applying it to women equally to men, that every person has the capacity to be fully intellectually and morally cultivated, given the opportunity to do so. And I think I'd like to discuss opportunity for cultivation in a more traditional Confucian sense, because Lee is actually on very solid ground here. That is, he may be arguing against the accepted norms in his society and in his society's tradition, but if we look at the actual foundational texts of Confucianism, he's really on the mark. So I'd like to take a look at a passage or two by, quite frankly, my favorite Confucian thinker, Mencius or Mengzi, who is considered to be the second most important sage in Confucianism after Confucius himself. Mengzi was actually taught by Confucius's grandson, so he is very early in the tradition. And from the time of the Neo-Confucians, so going back to the 11th century or so, had risen to a position of prominence in Neo-Confucianism. In fact, it's Mengzi's interpretation of Confucius that is the dominant interpretation in Neo-Confucianism. So I'd like to take a look now at one of my favorite passages from Mencius. It comes toward the end of chapter 1a7, and the specific reference is 1a7, 20 through 23. And while it doesn't mention women at all, the logic of what's going on here, I think, informs the logic of Li's position. It goes like this. Mencius said, Only a noble is capable of having a constant heart while lacking a constant livelihood. And by noble here, he means ethically or morally cultivated person, not necessarily an aristocrat. As for the people, if they lack a constant livelihood, it follows that they will lack a constant heart. No one who lacks a constant heart will avoid dissipation and evil. When they thereupon sink into crime, to go and punish the people is to trap them. When there are benevolent persons in positions of authority, how is it possible for them to trap the people? For this reason, the enlightened ruler must regulate the people's livelihood to ensure that it is sufficient on the one hand to serve their fathers and mothers, and on the other hand to nurture their wives and children. In good years they are always full, in years of famine they escape death. Only then do they rush towards the good, and thus the people follow the ruler easily. Nowadays, the people's livelihood is regulated so that it is neither sufficient to serve their fathers and mothers, nor is it sufficient to nurture their wives and children. Even in good years, they are always bitter. In years of famine, they cannot escape death. This is a case in which one fears not having the means to escape death. How could they have leisure for cultivating ritual and righteousness? Okay, this may sound like it has nothing to do with the letter that we're looking at right now, but I think there's an underlying logic that is definitely relevant. Mencius refers to trapping the people as setting up conditions in which they are likely to fail and then blaming them for their failure. This is exactly what Lee is saying is happening with women in his society. The conditions under which they live set them up to fail at personal cultivation, for example. 
and then in turn they are blamed for not being sufficiently cultivated. So while Lee's argument preempts Mary Wollstonecraft by about 200 years, he's actually on very solid grounds in terms of Confucianism itself. A key element of Mencius's argument is that it's on the part of the regime, the guiding institutions of society, to establish conditions such that every person has the opportunity to cultivate themselves to their fullest ability. Lee is simply taking this logic and explicitly applying it to women, which in the tradition up to that point has generally not been done. But the logic is there right from the foundation. So Lee distinguishes, of course, between broad and narrow vision, but then goes on to say that these are the function not merely of the innate capacities of men or women respectively, but of the individual who has or has not cultivated whatever capacity they may have been born with. And he seems to assume an equality of capacity between women and men. Now, though, I think I'd like to take a look at one more bit from Mencius in this context. This is passage 6a8, and it's his description of a place called Ox Mountain. It goes something like this. The trees of Ox Mountain were once beautiful, but because it bordered on a large state, hatchets and axes besieged it. Could it remain verdant? Due to the respite that it got during the day or night, and the moisture of rain and dew, there were sprouts and shoots growing there, but oxen and sheep came and grazed on them. Hence it was as if it were barren. Seeing it barren, people believed that there had never been any timber there, but could this be the nature of the mountain? When we consider what is present in people, could they truly lack the hearts of benevolence and righteousness? The way that they discard their genuine hearts is like the hatchets and axes in relation to the trees. With them besieging it day and night, can it remain beautiful? With the respite it gets during the day or night, and the restorative effects of its morning chi, their likes and dislikes are sometimes close to those of others, but then what they do during the day again fetters and destroys it. If the fettering is repeated, then the evening chi is insufficient to preserve it. If the evening chi is insufficient to preserve it, then one is not far from an animal. Others see that he is an animal and think there was never any capacity there, but is this what a human being is like inherently? Hence, if it merely gets nourishment, there is nothing that will not grow. If it merely loses nourishment, there is nothing that will not vanish. Kongzi, that's Confucius, said, grasped, then preserved, abandoned, then lost. Its goings and comings have no fixed time. No one knows its home. Was it not the heart of which he spoke? And okay, again, it looks like there is nothing to do here with the letter that we're discussing, but the underlying logic is something I'd like to address once more. The basic scene is that there's this place called Ox Mountain, which seems to be barren because it's constantly grazed by animals and its trees are cut down by the axes of woodsmen. So it has the appearance of a place that never had the capacity to actually be lush, to be full of life and growth. But Mencius points out that its barrenness is not a result of its capacity, of its nature, but rather of its circumstances, not of what it is, but of what is done to it, of choices that are made relative to it and he distinguishes between its current state and its actual nature or capacity. 
And that line, hence, if it merely gets nourishment, there is nothing that will not grow. If it merely loses its nourishment, there is nothing that will not vanish, is particularly relevant here. This is basically the same logic that Lee is applying to women who are confined to the inner chambers and therefore don't have the capacity to nurture or nourish themselves intellectually, socially, what have you. And then in turn are talked about by men as if they didn't have any capacity to begin with, as the man to whom Lee is responding in his letter actually asserts. That is, if you want to make a feminist institutional critique of society, you actually can do so, and Lee does so, from a Confucian position. Now, though, while there are lots of other passages in the classical tradition that support Lee's argument, I'd like to move on to the second topic that I wanted to discuss, his use of the historical canon, particularly the Confucian historical canon, and his treatment of Book 8, Chapter 20 of Confucius's Analects. In the letter, Lee refers to a woman by the name of Yi Jiang as one of King Wu's ministers and someone who helped him to establish a peaceful reign throughout the kingdom. Now, King Wu is, in the Confucian tradition, one of the virtuous rulers. That is, he's a paragon of both ethical and political virtue, someone to be taken as a model and basically to be aspired to. The specific passage that Lee is referring to here, as I mentioned, it's Book 8, Chapter 20, goes like this. Shun had five ministers, and all under heaven was well governed. And King Wu said, I have ten ministers who are skilled in government. Master Kong, that's Confucius, commented, Is it not true that talent is hard to find? At the time of Shun's accession, things are thought to have flourished. And with a woman among King Wu's ministers, there were in fact only nine men. Yet he held two-thirds of all under heaven, and with this served the yin. The virtue of Zhou may indeed be called perfect virtue. Wu is one of the founders of the Zhou dynasty, whose first few centuries Confucius takes as sort of a golden age. So here we see that, going right back to Confucius, there is a recognition of an equal capacity among men and women. Granted, there was only one woman among Wu's ten ministers, but this is not a reflection of the relative capacities of the two, but rather of the relative opportunities. So just as Lee does, some almost 2,000 years later, Confucius recognizes the innate capacity for both virtue and political effectiveness among women and men, an equality that, as I said, is largely glossed over by the subsequent tradition, and yet that is there in the foundational texts, as Lee points out, as he also, as we've said, points out with the argument from Mencius. So largely, I think, what Lee's doing here is he's subtly correcting what he seems to see as a mistake in the almost 2,000 years of Confucian tradition that precedes him. And this is not really that surprising. Unlike, for example, the so-called religions of the book that take a particular text, the Bible, the Quran, what have you, as the absolute authority, there's no book in Confucianism that has that kind of authority. Certain books have cultural authority, but many thinkers within the tradition simply see these books as the works of particularly gifted or insightful people 
but not as in any way authoritative in and of themselves, or not as anything that is incapable of being either surpassed or interpreted in new and useful ways, that perhaps even the initial writers wouldn't have seen or even thought of. So again, as I mentioned, what Lee is doing here is he is grounding uh, what I've called a feminist institutional critique of society in the foundational texts of the most important worldview in Chinese cultural history. This is not insignificant, I think. As I mentioned before, Lee eventually ended up falling afoul of authorities and being arrested. And it is largely both his taking on women of students, but also, I think, the positions he takes about women that really rubbed the authorities the wrong way. And yet, as I said, he continued after his death to be a subversive influence, someone to whom not the authorities, but rather the reformers, tended to turn in making their own arguments for change and progress. And I think now you're beginning to see why. That said, there is one more theme I want to address in this little talk, and that is the rather obscure story about Layman Pang with which he concludes. Here we're shifting from a Confucian to a more Buddhist context, and as he's talking specifically about a man rather than a woman, you might wonder why he's wrapping up this way, but I actually do think it makes sense. So here's what I think is going on. First, though, as the passage is quite short, let's just have it in front of us again for the sake of clarity. Layman Pang came from the city of Hangyang in the Chu region. He and his wife, Mother Pang, and their daughter, Ling Zhao, revered the Chan master Matsu and made him their teacher. They sought to transcend the material world, and one day they escaped the cycle of rebirth. By putting aside the things of this world, they gave inspiration for all humanity. I hope, sir, that this man's story can stand as an example of what it is to be a far-sighted person. Now, it may at first seem strange, as this is a letter about the equality of women and men, that he's closing with the story of a man being far-sighted. But I don't really think it's that strange in context. Pang is being given as an example of someone who doesn't impose a distinction based on sex or gender on his understanding of the relative capacities of men and women. That is, his position is exactly antithetical to the person to whom Lee is responding in this letter. I think it also matters that we're shifting towards the end from a more or less Confucian to a pretty explicitly Buddhist context, and particularly a Chan or Zen Buddhist context. And here I think the phrase, things of this world, needs to be explored a bit. One of the notions that you come across if you explore the central writings of Mahayana Buddhism, of which Chan Buddhism is a school, is the understanding that what we perceive as distinct things are products of consciousness, not that our consciousness summons the things themselves into being in some sort of New Agey Deepak Chopra kind of way, but rather that the categories of thought that we carry around in our heads influence the way we perceive the world and project sort of a distinct thinginess onto what would otherwise be sort of an undifferentiated field of experience or phenomena. One useful place to actually look for this understanding is in the Diamond Sutra, where it's one of the recurring themes. If we take a look, for example, at chapter 5, we have this snippet of conversation between the Buddha, he referred to as the Tathagata, and his student, Subhuti. Subhuti, what do you think? Is the Tathagata to be recognized by some material characteristic? 
no world-honored one. The Tathagata cannot be recognized by any material characteristic. Wherefore? Because the Tathagata has said that material characteristics are not, in fact, material characteristics. Buddha said, Subhuti, wherever there are material characteristics, there is delusion. But whoever perceives that all characteristics are in fact no characteristics, perceives the Tathagata. Now I'm going to admit that probably sounds kind of weird to most people listening to this. As if we were to phrase it in mathematical notation, it would look something like x does not equal x, which is quite clearly nonsense. Now the writers or writer of the Diamond Sutra knew this. They knew that it would look like nonsense, and that in fact is its function. What the sutra attempts to do here and elsewhere is to highlight the distinction between things and the words we use to refer to things or the categories of thought through which we perceive things and to warn against the intellectual danger of equating the two. I do go into this in some detail in the episode on the Diamond Sutra back in the second season, so feel free to check that out. In our immediate context, though, it's worth bearing in mind that The name woman, or whatever language you want to speak in, word for woman and word for man, are not the same thing as woman and man. And these categories of thought, and this is a live conversation in our culture right now, can sometimes impose more than they reveal. They are not true in and of themselves. And they may say actually more about the people using them, the people imposing them, than about the things being discussed. I think this is partly what Lee is getting at in his discussion of the importance of seeing past things of this world. Those categories of thought, the words themselves, are among the things of this world that Lehman Pang and his family are able to see past. That is, according to the labels used in this world, you have a man and a woman and a girl, a husband and a wife and a daughter, all of whom are, quote, lay people, unquote studying under a, quote, master, unquote, but all of these labels are merely labels. And to mistake the labels for real things is to impose basically our own selves, our own egos on the world and then treat the world and the things and people in it as if they were reflections of our own egos, of our own minds. Lee's argument here beyond the immediate calling out of his interlocutor is, I think, exactly this distinction between words or categories of thought and the things to which we refer, and a recognition that words, although necessary, labels, although necessary, can also sometimes be traps, and they're things we need to see beyond in ways that particularly repressive cultures and repressive ideologies seem committed to not doing. And again, we're seeing this in our own time now. With the attempt, for example, or many attempts on the part of multiple state legislatures to basically impose binary gender on what the scientific community generally actually has recognized as a spectrum that is by no means binary in nature. So the imposition of categories of thought, the imposition of words on things, people, or our whole field of experience comes with very real danger, and Lee is aware of these dangers. And I think he recognizes that the social distinctions between men and women in his society, and in our society still, are products of this misunderstanding, this confusion between words and things. And with that, I think I may have been yammering on long enough, and it's time to call it a day. I hope you've enjoyed this little exploration into 
what I honestly believe is the first work of Chinese feminism, and I hope this little traipse through both Confucianism and Buddhism has been useful or at least enjoyable for you. If you want to get a hold of me, you can find me on email at eclectic.humanist at gmail.com, at the Eclectic Humanist Facebook page, and at EC Humanist on Twitter. If you've made it this far, as always, thank you very much for listening. And until next time, be safe, be informed, and be kind to each other.